G'day listeners and welcome to another episode of Conversations in Code. I'm Mike. I'm Campbell. For today's episode we talk about learning eLisp, breaking into eLisp development, developing packages for Emacs and finish it up with some thoughts on Emacs and eLisp. Sounds good. So with that we'll, we'll get into it. Good day to you Cam. How have you been going? What have you been up to lately? Oh, I've been going pretty well. Um, well, I've written some scripts to do uh, dictation, uh, like speech recognition, and that's gotten surprisingly good. So I'm quite happy with that yeah. and might talk a bit more about it later. So a, con- a contender for uh, dragon dictation or whatever it's called? I have no idea. Probably not <laughs> if you're going to be picky about these things, but I'm just happy to have working dictation that I can just mm. yeah push to talk and it just types in whatever I'm saying and yeah pretty good accuracy so yeah it's quite so nice. you're you're using that and it's it's useful for you yeah yeah I mostly use it mm. for code comments and sometimes patch review and um, yeah mm. it does a really good job and it's running locally it's none of this cloud business so it's very quick mm. and yeah mm. yeah so I just wrote a utility that does the does the typing and stuff mm. sends it to a library and gets back the text very good yeah, so that's been it's been pretty nice. Um, not that many new things impacts my workflow on a regular basis like that. So it's yeah, it's been pretty mm. nice. I've been doing some optimizations for work. Those have been going well. Users have been noticing it and appreciating them. Mm. Along with my colleagues, I should say, we're three of us working on those. So that's that's been pretty good. Anyway, um, how have you been going? Yeah, I've been good. I mean, as far as the computer stuff goes, it's just all the usual Ansible config stuff. The the journey continues there, but um, outside of computer pursuits, I've been working over the last few weeks on um, building some shelving in my shed. I've got a lot of stuff in the shed that's all just sprawled out over the floor and I have no usable space on the floor um, just because we we had the shed built and um, we had a whole heap of stuff that we needed to put somewhere and that's just sort of what happened. But um, I'm very keen to start working on doing some proper fit out in there so that I can pack a lot of stuff away, get some usable floor space and start actually doing things in there, which will be nice. So um, the first first part of that is to, to do the shelving and um, I'm sort of halfway through, but it's pretty um, pretty substantial what I'm building because the shed has a high point in the middle um, and the shelving unit that I'm building in um, that's attached to one of the walls, it's uh, 3.6 metres high, six or so shelves. Each of them are about uh, 700 mils high and um, 800 mils deep, so... Um, they're pretty substantial and I'm building it all out of heavy framing pine. So, I mean, there's not enough room for me up at the top to get up there, but if I could, I could jump up and down on top of it with all of my might and uh, it wouldn't move. So I'm pretty happy with how it's all coming up and I'll be able to pack a lot of stuff away there. So yeah, that's what I've been doing lately. Okay. Yeah, I need to do that too. Not (laughs) with the jumping up and down on top of this massively tall thing because my shed's way smaller. (laughs) But um, yeah, I need some space in my shed too. Yeah, I have the same yeah, problem, no floor space. It's the, the old hoarders thing. It doesn't matter if there's a chance that you might use some of these things in some at some point in future. If you don't know where each item is, you might as well not have it. I really want to get to the point where I've got a place for everything and everything in its place, you know? Yeah, yeah. 
For this week, we're talking about Emacs again, but more on the development side or scripting side at least. Mm. Yeah, so maybe we just just get into it. Yeah, sounds good. So I've been using Emacs since 2016, um, fairly seriously. So yeah, about five years at this point. And was pretty much developing a bit of Elisp here and there from the start. Um, but it's taken me a while to really get into it. So I thought it might be worth just talking about learning Elisp and what it's been like. So I should just mention sort of my current experience level. I'd consider myself intermediate, not really advanced at Elisp. Um, I've written over 15 packages on Melpa and a few of them have been picked up by Doom and um, reasonably popular. But um, most of them are just for my own personal use. I, I don't particularly have aspirations to make big packages that everyone else is using. It's just I'll run into some pain point and I'll try and solve it. Um, and sometimes yeah. I end up with a package that other people can use. Yeah, uh, just a few um, valuable contributions scattered here and there. I, I've, I've come across a couple of your contributions with um, when I'm using Doom, so it's good. Yeah, some of them are small, but I was surprised no one else had done them before. But anyway, no matter. Mm. But that's just at the level I'm at now. Um, I should also mention where I'm coming from. So I've mostly been doing C and Python, um, and I had quite a bit of experience with uh, Blender's Python API because I've been developing that for a long time now. Um, for over 10 years, I've been the maintainer of Blender's Python API. It's interesting to see other software, how it handles extensibility and uh, how you can hook into it and extend it. And my previous experience with other software was that it didn't give anywhere near as much control as Blender did. So, you know, I would have something I'd like to do in some software and I'd see it's got a, maybe a Python API, maybe another language, but no matter. Um, you know, it has documentation, you look into it, you figure out if it's possible. And very, very often, there just wouldn't be the ability to do the kinds of things I would want to do. And I found that quite, sort of quite annoying and surprising. Just so, whereas with Blender, like everything's at your fingertips, you can change pixels, vertices, um, you can just add, remove objects, you can do... I wouldn't say everything. There are some things that are off limits for, for the Python API, but you can do quite a lot. And it's really nice having that feeling, that feeling of control and that you just you can just manipulate stuff if you want to. So it struck me as strange. I couldn't get anywhere near that much control with any of the other editors I used. What I mean, what about something like Vim? Is that... Um, I, I haven't looked into it in detail, but... Um, and I've heard Vim script's pretty rough, but yeah. Yeah, I... Is I actually made a pretty serious effort to move back to Vim at one point because Emacs was running fairly slow and I just thought, well, if I just mm. took the functionality I liked in Emacs and brought it back to Vim, maybe mm. I just haven't given Vim enough of a chance. Um, and I seriously tried doing some sort of interactive search stuff in Vim that I had working in Emacs. While there are interactive search features available in Vim, I couldn't get them working quite the same way as in Emacs. And I couldn't get them working as flexibly either. It's always possible I could have dug further into it, but I think I'm not alone in this, in finding that Emacs, you can just quickly extend and do all sorts of things with. And with Vim, yeah, it just seems you can't compose things together quite as quickly. 
Yeah, yeah. Although I can't quite put my finger on what wasn't working. It was just quite awkward to do the things that I wanted to do, and I kept running into running into things that didn't work how I wanted them to work, and it wasn't obvious how I could change that, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how how long ago were we talking about? Oh, you know? this would have been you know, four years ago, maybe. Yeah, so okay. early on, maybe mm. four or five, early on when I was trying to use Emacs and thought mm. maybe I should give Vim another shot. There was like two or three features that I'd already developed in Emacs and I thought I'd try and redevelop them in Vim and I just mm. got really stuck. And it wasn't like I didn't try. You know, I asked questions on Stack Overflow or whatever and, um, yeah, that didn't really have satisfactory answers. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, from, from there you sort of gave up on the other options and just sort of went back to Emacs or is that how it worked? Or Yeah. Mm. I had my Vim config that I basically made work in Emacs almost exactly the same way. So it was very easy to switch back and forth. And I just mm. had a few features that I tried to develop in, in Vim, really ran into a brick wall trying to do that and just decided to switch back to Emacs. And I ended up resolving the performance issues and it, it was working fine. Mm. It had a few things enabled to do with um, overlays and stuff that were just making it run a bit slow and just mm. turned them off. Yeah, so getting into Emacs was was pretty good, but being extensible alone isn't enough. It's got to really be be a good piece of software too. And, mm. you know, when you start out, there's all these options for plugins and you don't really know what to use. And you're a bit, you're, you can be a little bit lost as to what direction to go in. It took me a little while, but I basically started matching my Vim config and then just added functionality from there. Mm. Was that like in terms of getting into it, was that helpful, like a helpful approach to start with a, a config that was sort of somewhat satisfactory in Vim and, and try and initially just replicate that in Emacs and then you sort of go on from there? Did, did that work well for you? It worked really well. Um, the mm. main reason it worked well is that I was able to use Emacs every day for work and that was great. Otherwise, mm. I just wouldn't have... Otherwise, it just would have been tricky because I would have had to have been using Vim and then every now and again using Emacs and it would have been different. It's possible for some people, I suppose, if they had like extremely customized Vim things that weren't easily replicatable in Emacs, then maybe that wouldn't be the way to go. But what I had set up in Vim was quite quite simple to, to replicate. Mm. So maybe next I'll just talk about breaking into the language because I think... Getting started with a with a scripting language or with an extension system is often the hardest bit. Just going from knowing absolutely nothing to being able to write useful tools for yourself. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm interested to know about. <laughs> I mean, that's not necessarily for Elisp, but um, I do want to get into Python. And I mean, like I've had pretty much zero experience. So... I don't know, and I guess another question is the the breaking in process, somewhat similar between different languages. Or, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm keen to know sort of where to start in terms of getting into something new. Yeah, well, I'm not sure if my experience is representative or not, but I found the tutorials mm. not that useful. Yeah, they were useful just to see what's possible. So. You could go through a tutorial and look over it and just see, okay, these things can be done. That's fine. But unless it's actually something that you're interested in solving, mm, I didn't find yep. them that handy. Like you can say, okay, this is how you will add numbers together. That's fine. So probably the language itself wasn't 
so hard to pick up the basics of early on. I didn't find that mm. to be such an issue. Although, of course, there are all sorts of quirks with with Lisp mm. that aren't aren't so simple. But just you know, doing very beginner stuff like basic functions and stuff. Mm. Um, it wasn't yeah. The tutorials weren't that helpful because most of the issues I was trying to solve were more specific problems that I wanted to solve mm. with my own workflow, and so I had an idea in my head of what I wanted to do. And then I just needed to break that problem into smaller pieces and solve each one of those problems individually. And because mm. of that, a tutorial often didn't really address what I was interested in doing. Yeah. If you're wanting to break into that new language, you need to use it um, as the tool to scratch a particular itch. Well, I did at least. Yeah. I couldn't really mm. get motivated about the tutorials um, or mm. the, I mean, the tutorials were fine. I shouldn't bag them. Maybe I didn't look at the right ones or something. I, I have been looking at um, one or two websites that do like coding challenges and that sort of thing just to um, try and get a bit of an understanding of the basics of, of Python. Um, do you think you'd ever find anything like that useful? It's not that they're not useful. You can do those things and they can be fine. The problem can be that if you don't really care about having completed them, like you don't get a sense of satisfaction from having completed them, yeah. you might not be as likely yeah. to continue doing them. Whereas yeah. if you solve yeah. something that actually is important to you, that's yeah. you'll remember it or you'll you'll keep using it. Maybe you'll extend on it. You'll have ideas of how you can extend it. Yeah. I mean, that sort of thing maybe seems to appeal more so to some some people. I think a certain personality type does get a fair bit of satisfaction out of doing that type of challenge. So, yeah. But I think I'm more personally more along the lines of, you know, your approach in that um, I think it really needs to be some particular problem that I'm I'm needing to solve and I just try, need to try and use the, the new language to, to solve it. Yeah. I've seen some people set up tests that fail as like a way of learning programming. So you have a whole lot of mm. tests and all of the tests fail and it starts off mm. by the most absolutely simple thing, you know, like assert that one equals one or something and then it just mm. it just builds up from the extreme basics. And I, I think that mm. could be worth having a look at for you. Mm. So you just download the project and you run the tests and they all fail and you just go through and make them all pass. Yeah, because I mean... You, um a lot of um, working your way through using a language to actually implement some type of tool is is a matter of you know problem solving where the bugs are coming That's from. That's right. And, yeah. yeah, I was already experienced with Python, so it wasn't educational for me so much. It was just more the experience of checking out what these people had done, which was pretty nice. Um, but it was it was just nice to see how. You would start off with something so simple that it was like, come on, don't waste my time with this making sure one equals one. But then you you move on to, mm. you know, missing brackets somewhere or so, something which might not be completely obvious to someone who didn't know the, the language syntax, mm. but you could see it eased them into the kinds of... Yeah. And I mean, like I did come across those sort of problem sets on, on these code challenge websites and they did seem good because... What I found myself doing was I was looking at the the Python examples uh, to try and start, you know, familiarizing myself, but they were a bit tricky. And then just to compare, I went across to the um, 
the same sort of problems for uh, that that were written in Bash script, which I am much more used to. And it was just an interesting exercise to um, to have a go at the Bash examples because um, I feel like I'm reasonably handy with with Bash scripting by now. But um, some some of them were were pretty tricky to track down where where the issues were were coming from. Oh, okay. So you've done this already. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And you found them good? You found them helped you learn, or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I mean, as as it always is, it's just a matter of um, I've got so many different, um, uh, you know, things pulling me in different directions that I'm trying to investigate or tinker with um, as far as the the you know the, the Linux and coding stuff. But um, I like if if I make the time to to keep going with those exercises, I think some of them could be quite helpful for me. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Mm. Yeah, I don't know if anything like that exists for Elisp. Elisp, el- blah, damn it, I have a slight lisp and I have to keep saying Elisp. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, the tricky thing with Elisp is though that you're often not writing a script that, that just spits out a number or some text. You're often writing something that does something interesting with respect to the selection or the cursor motion or something. So... You can't just mm. write a bunch of. I mean, you you could write a bunch of tests and just run them, but it would be more involved. I think it doesn't have that quite same ease of mm. having a bunch of tests tests and you just mm. you know change a few words and see the output to what you expect. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it's not to do with Lisp. It's to do with writing code that is intended to run in a text editor. I think it's just a little bit trickier to test. Mm. Yeah, because you have to expect some text to be there. Look, there are testing frameworks and stuff, so maybe I should shouldn't say that. But by default, mm. at least, you don't just have the same kind of input output assumption that you would for just testing a Python script or something. Mm. Mm. Yes, yeah, so as I was saying, I had to break these problems down into small small things and solve each one. So I ended up having to ask a lot of questions on Stack Exchange, and that was good because even just asking a question sometimes. Sometimes you'll end up solving it just by having to concisely word exactly what the problem is. And by the time you've done that, you've figured out what the issue is, you know? Have you heard of the um, rubber duck uh, coding partner? I think I've heard it called dog dog debugging, but it's I think it's the same so, thing. Yeah, yeah. So the idea is you have, yeah, uh, you know, a toy dog or a rubber duck or whatever on your desk and um, they're that 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 um inanimate object is your um is your coding assistant and they assist you by when you have a, a an in, intractable problem that you're trying to work through um you just need to turn to that inanimate object and explain to them in detail what your problem is and why your um you you don't know how to uh, resolve resolve the issue, and in the process of explaining it that way, you often tend to come across um, some little tidbit that you've glossed over in your high level thinking about the problem, and re- you realise, you know, potentially where the the issue is actually coming from. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's like that. Although it's a bit different because often to concisely, I suppose it's a similar thing to concisely express what you mean. And you'll you'll start making statements like, well, this can't be possible because, and then it's like, well, maybe it could be possible. Maybe hmm. I haven't ruled out every possibility. 
Yeah, that's right. And it doesn't have to be an inanimate object on on your desk. It, it could you it could be your wife or something like that. I've tried to do something similar um, with using my wife as my. I don't always you know, appreciate my, it. I've found my yeah my coding assistant, but it's difficult because um, <laughs> she starts to, to. Well, yeah, she starts to walk away after a while. Uh, yeah. I don't get to the end of explaining the problem, you know. So yeah. <laughs> so probably I had to ask a whole lot more than two hundred questions, but. Yeah, they're the ones that I didn't manage to solve by the time I'd mm. finished asking them. And um, that, that's been really good. It was an excellent mm. way to um, to figure things out. And props, what do you say, kudos? Massive, massive props. Um, I'm really grateful to the people on Stack Exchange who helped me as well. It's really... Big ups. Big yeah, ups, yeah. 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 Um, so you, you found that... Most of your your questions were answered? Yeah, I think that was the difference between Vim and Emacs was that if I asked a difficult question about Vim, I got a really, it was, the answer was often like, this is difficult or maybe you should try to use someone else's plugin that happens to do something similar. Whereas with Emacs, it was more like, here's a snippet of code that does exactly what you want. Mm. I would get it and be able to manipulate it and whatever and it, it was good. So I guess that potentially leads on to you know, talk, talking about the Emacs community, um, have you found that that's what what they're generally like um, in a wider sense? Like, I mean, obviously, part of that community is um, is spending their time on on Stack, um, stack Exchange. Um, they, I mean, from what I've seen, that they seem quite quite helpful and friendly. Has that been your experience? Or yeah, it has. Although I don't. I don't have a good sense of what the community, who the community is. It seems like there are different communities. There's, there's people who answer questions on Stack Exchange, and there's Reddit, and there's the IRC chat room, and and all of this. But I don't really have a sense that there's a cohesive community. Or if there is, maybe they're the developers who talk on the, on the mailing list. And so far, I haven't got into communicating on the mailing mm. list. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't really have a good sense of the community or who they are or what they're like, but there are at least people who are very helpful on Stack Exchange. And that's been really valuable and meant that I could develop a lot of the stuff that I ended up doing. Yeah, and I mean, you've talked about um, publishing a few things on Melpa and that sort of thing. Is there sort of a, uh, like a, a sort of a de- defined community around all of that Melpa stuff or? Well, there's a few people who review packages on Melpa, and that's about as far as I know. And they seem pretty good. Uh, they early on were helping me with some of the sillier things I was including in my code and pointing out things that could be done better. Yeah, mm. but I didn't really get a sense of a large group of people that I was becoming mm. a part of. It's more just individuals you communicate with yep. and it's fine. Yep. It is a bit of a contrast with other projects that I've been involved with where I have felt like I'm part of a community where there's a one place where they all hang out and you chat regularly and get to know each other and stuff. Um, like is that is that more like more of a thing with Python, for example, or I don't know Python. I didn't get into enough in their community. Mm. I used to go to their chat room sometimes to ask questions, but they usually really didn't like me very much because <laughs> I would ask really really difficult questions about the internals of the C API, and it ended up being like. Come on, just go read the C source code yourself. So that's what I started doing. Just it wasn't really fair on them too because I was asking questions about like corner cases of yeah. Python's internal yeah. behavior. I think they felt like they were a bit of a service to the community where new 
Python developers would come in and yeah. I was maybe abusing that <laughs> um, <laughs> their generosity by coming in and asking about like memory management and Python and <laughs> I don't know, whatever, just something technical yeah, yeah. that wasn't yeah. really appropriate. So while I don't have a sort of a sense of what the Emacs community is, generally my experiences are pretty positive on Reddit mm. and uh, Stack Overflow. It's, yeah, it's, people are pretty friendly and yeah. yeah, even to the point where I don't use Reddit much, but it it has such a bad reputation. Yeah, people yeah. are civil to each other. There's, I don't know, it seems yeah, fun. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, like, yeah, no, I, I always, you know, hear people saying that Reddit's a dumpster fire, but it must just be the, the subreddits that you're on because, you know, it's all been quite positive in my experience as well. Yeah. yeah. So maybe I should mention a bit more about developing packages, um, just having mm. got into Emacs and sort of my experience working on my own packages. So I started off just extracting functionality from my init file. Every now and again, there would be something that would be getting a bit bloated and it looked like it would be reasonable to make a package out of it. And I just basically kept doing that. Um, although a few things I more intentionally started off as sort of as isolated pieces of functionality. Um, and probably not worth going through all the packages I've worked on, but just to mention a few yeah, so I've worked on um, undo foo, which is a simple undo redo package, um, an undo package, a different undo package that can save and restore undo history. So you can load a file um, and keep the undo history, which is pretty handy. Um, a spell checker called spell foo. I think that's the extent of the foo packages I've got. Only the <laughs> only the really good ones deserve the foo. The other ones are just regular non-foo packages. Um, some text navigation, smooth scrolling, uh, functionality, and immediate completion, which I called recomplete. And that one I quite like because I use it all the time, and that is to do a completion but do it immediately. So if you want to correct the spelling of a word, for example, you just have to press a key shortcut and it gives you the correct spelling. And if you don't like that spelling that it's given it to you, you press it again and it gives you the next one. So... So if it's the right one, which it usually is because it's, I've usually dismissed typed one character, I just have to press a key shortcut and I can just keep keep editing it. So there's no prompt, no blocking oh, okay. prompt or anything like that. <clears throat> yeah, okay. So the the normal um, completion uh, functionality is to provide a, a list that you choose from. Is that how it works? Right, yeah. You, you have a, the option to select something and you have to select the thing and then that blocks yep. you and then you select it and then you, you keep going. Yep. And that's fine, mm. but for, for typos, particularly if you're just looking at some text, maybe it's someone else has written it and there's a few typos, it's nice just to jump around with your cursor and just correct the words and not have to get a list each time. Mm. And it um it's set up so if, if it's not the right one, you just hit the key again and it cycles through. If you really want, you can cycle backwards and handles the undo history so it doesn't consider that you've made as many edits as cycles as you've done. So it's yeah, yeah. cleverly, yeah. yeah doesn't clog up your undo history with all the options that you tried. Mm. Yeah, so in general, I'm quite happy with the packages I've written. I don't feel the need to write any more for now, but I'm sure I will as time goes on. Um, yeah, I'd be surprised if there weren't any more coming from you. You seem to um, you seem to punch me out with reasonable frequency, so um, yeah. Yeah, for a while there, there was just a lot of different things I wanted, yeah, I wanted to improve yeah. on with my workflow. Yeah. Yeah, so now I'm at the point where even though I'm not a complete expert, I can pretty much figure out stuff for myself. 
which is fine, but it's it means I know sometimes if I have to look into something, it might be a rabbit hole and I'll have mm. to spend some number of hours digging into it to figure out what the problem is. Mm. So I still do ask questions sometimes just because it's easier to ask someone else than to have to figure it out. But it does feel a little bit lazy as well, you know, if I know <laughs> yeah, I could yeah. figure it out given the time. Yeah. So usually I give it a shot and if it's if it becomes a rabbit hole, then you ask ask someone else. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, like even if, I mean, it might feel a little bit like cheating, but, you know, it might be if you ask the question on, on Stack Overflow, then it might be useful for someone else, and you know it doesn't have to be written again if it's if you've asked the question and someone's answered. So yeah, or sometimes I ask it and no one answers, and that's fine. And then I answer it myself, mm. and then at least it's yeah, yeah. And then at least yeah. I can search for it online because it won't necessarily be in a place I can remember to get it. Otherwise, you know, if I haven't got it online somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I had the thought. I don't know whether it's really doable or not, but I had the thought that might be an interesting way to um, maintain your own set of of code snippets was would be to ask questions on on Stack Exchange in such a way that you could build something that uses their API to uh, pull the snippets down when you need to add them to your code or whatever. Yeah, I've actually done that. Okay. Uh, or something very similar, and that is there was a whole lot of question and answers that actually gave me very useful functionality Mm. um, that I didn't really want to make into a package because it was only, well, it wasn't so many lines of code. It was just very, very small, useful functionality. So um, I made a a repo that just grabs the answers off Stack Exchange and Mm. and downloads them and sort of uses them as a mini repository of useful functionality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's similar to what I was thinking, yeah. As far as that goes, that's, yeah, that's the beauty of something like, um, you know, the Stack Exchange sites is, you know, it's it's published and out there. I mean, there's other ways to publish um, bits of code and that sort of thing, but um, the Stack Exchange sites are, are very appropriate for those sort of small small snippets and, you know, getting getting a bit of context around them and that sort of thing. So it's, um, yeah, it's a good, um, good platform. I'm sure people listening have probably run into this too, but, well, if you've asked many questions on Stack Exchange, that is, but you'll do a search and you'll come across your own question and sometimes it's frustrating yeah. because you're like, hey, these guys had the same problem I've had. And then and then you're like, ah. Oh. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's an XKCD comment oh, to cover sure that there particular is. But it's, it's happened to me yeah. so many times now. Um, yeah. But the problem with it is often it's the bit that you want to know still isn't solved. I mean, that's why you're asking <laughs> yeah. it again. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever had that happen? I think I think I may have. I can't, I can't think of the exact example, but I think that has happened to me, yeah. Yeah, I mean, irrespective, it's handy. Or even just look through your own list of questions can be a quick way to find out how to do something. Yeah. It's also a good excuse for writing really good code snippets too because sometimes I ask a question and it's fairly specific. I suspect no one else is going to answer. So then I answer my own question. But because I'm answering my own question and it's public, I feel some responsibility to write a really good quality code snippet that handles all the corner cases and is well commented yeah. and stuff like that. Do a, you do a proper job yeah, of do it. Yeah, do a good job and make it a really good reference for anyone who stumbles on it. And then I end up with a really nice piece of code and um, yeah. it ends up being more useful for me as well. Yeah, when when you're publishing on the platform, it, it, it just encourages good coding behavior. Yeah, did you hear they got bored? No, actually. Yeah. Was this a recent thing? Yeah, quite recent, last few weeks, I think. Um, by who? Oh, actually, I might have heard of it. Who? By who? It wasn't a company I recognized. Mm. Just fingers crossed that 
it isn't uh, yeah. mismanaged in yeah. some way. As as is always the worry with these things. Mm. I mean, it's a bit of a tangent, but um, I think um, it's been very it's been very interesting for me to watch the the whole um, progression for how Red Hat's sort of been um, integrated into the um, into the the machinery and the the uh, the sort of culture at IBM and the impact that they're having and um, I think the example with um, with the Red Hat the, sorry the IBM acquisition of Red Hat I think I feel that it, it sort of shows that um, sometimes it can be a good thing for all parties when some of these acquisitions happen you know so I find it surprising that so many of these acquisitions just runs the company into the ground mm. but I suppose this is gets into all sorts of stuff like maybe the company wasn't profitable in the first place they've got to make money at some point and you end up doing things that make money but aren't very nice for the users and what else are you going to do you don't have any options or sometimes the acquisition kills the thing because the thing wasn't actually you know um, revenue generating it was it was something else and and in the process of someone acquiring the um the the project and and changing it so that it does become revenue generating might be you know what kills the the goose that lays the golden egg you yeah know? because i have a hard time believing that companies would just get bought and then run by complete idiots into the ground like i'm sure it mm. happens yeah it, it depends on what the um the acquiring company is is purchasing the you know the project for and um sometimes the thing that they're purchasing them for is not the thing that all of the users appreciate about them. And then that's when there's issues from the user's perspective, you know? Um, but I mean, like with the example of, of Red Hat, I feel that what um, IBM was purchasing was not their, not necessarily their revenue generating capability, but their, their culture um, because IBM wanted, um, wanted to, incorporate that culture because they could see how the culture then was able to generate revenue mm. yeah it's interesting uh, html n tag for tangent right right there yeah so maybe to wrap it up just mention a few final thoughts on elisp mm. um so yeah lisp is pretty weird um there's no two ways about it it's, I mean, ignoring... Lots of brackets. Yeah, I think the whole brackets thing's a bit overstated. Sure, <laughs> I mean, lots of brackets, it's, that's fine. It's a meme, yeah. But yeah. even ignoring is the it, brackets, just the weird names of functions and the behaviours of yeah. functions is a bit, can be yeah. strange. If I think too hard about Lisp, it's easy to be very critical. You can just pick apart all the silly decisions of the language and stuff. But I think it's a bit, it gets counterproductive because... Okay, if you were designing it again, you'd make some different decisions, but that's almost the case with anything that's fairly old. Yeah, there's aspects of it that are clunky, but there's also a lot of utility in there. It's just it just happens to be sort of cobbled together like that. It's I think the um, the simile that you've used in the past is that it's similar, very similar to English that way. There's lots of sort of bolted on stuff and that, but it just is what it is, and it's it's useful. It doesn't mean it's not useful, you know. Um, yeah, well, you can still be critical of it, but then it doesn't really help anyone to be too critical of it, not unless you're inventing a replacement, I suppose. Yeah, um, yeah. But I just try not to get too ideological about it and just focus mm. on what it can accomplish. And you just, you know, the random quirks are there and it's fine and you just you just get stuff done and, and move on and don't get mm. too caught up in the silliness of it or the, yeah. you know, things that you think could be a little bit better. 
Mm. Um, yeah, and most of the issues that I run into with it aren't really language anyway. It's mostly to do with the API or the ELISP Emacs API. Uh, most of the actual problems that take me time to figure out um, are more to do with yeah, Emacs's behavior. So I'm mostly dealing with extending Emacs and the actual language thing is, is fine, basically. It, mm, it's yeah, sufficient yeah. at least to do what I want to do. Are you basically saying that's more of an issue with Emacs rather than ELISP itself? Perhaps. It depends which area. Some of the areas, it may be that the APIs aren't very good. Other times, it mm. might just be that's a part of development. You have to work with existing APIs and figuring them out is, is, is a part of what you're doing when you're mm. extending an application. So I'm not necessarily criticizing Emacs APIs, although some of them are a bit wonky. Mentioning that you've got to accept ELISP how it is, it is interesting there aren't alternatives to Emacs that come close regarding extensibility. Hmm. Um, not that I can think of. There's been a few attempts. Just the, the, the general perception of Emacs, you know, my take is that the it's sort of viewed as very much sort of standing apart from everything else. So, yeah. I don't see why that should necessarily be the case. Someone could make an editor that uses Python as an extension language and add a lot of the features that Emacs has. Hmm. In fact, coming back to Blender again, funnily enough, um, it does happen to include a text editor. And there mm. are some people that really push what it can do with Python. Like I'm the maintainer of the text editor too, as it happens, and I try and keep mm. it really simple and basic. So, yeah, so Blender is is a great operating system lacking only a decent uh, 3D modeling program. Well, I hoped you were going to say a decent text editor because I would. that would be... <laughs> My intention. Uh, but yes, lacking a good 3D modeling program, that, that's a bit yeah, of a criticism, yeah. Michael. It's not very nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You might want to have some text in some 3D program and have some notes on what you're working on, that kind of thing. But when people submit patches that add advanced functionality like multiple word marking or multiple curses or we've had patches for some more advanced stuff and... Yeah, it just I think it's not I think it's mm. not the best use of our time to try and yeah, make it yeah, into a, a really powerful text editor. Yeah, but I mean that obviously indicates that people are interested in the concept of having a, a lot of control over, you know, the configuration of a text editor via a proper language and an API. Yeah, and I'm not completely against it, even in the context of Blender, if it was a very generic Python API that people could then hook into and do all sorts of different things. What mm. I'm more against is very specific features that take, basically that mm. take time for, for us to maintain. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. If, if someone wanted to spend a bit of time working on the Python API and improve mm. that and make it more generic ways of hooking into autocomplete and these mm. things, it, it could be okay. I'm not against it, but it just it just hasn't happened so much. It's been very specific features have been uh, have been submitted for inclusion yeah. and we've rejected yep. them and it's it is a bit awkward because sometimes people put a bit of time into it. So since then we've tried to make it more clear that it's it's only intended to be a very simple text editor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not impossible to fork it off, delete the whole three D engine stuff, <laughs> just <laughs> just pull the text editor out and then keep developing it and just work on the Python API and all that. Like someone could do it. Mm. But, mm. I mean, it's a big project. 
Yeah, it'd be an interesting origin story for a text editor. It would be a strange origin story. Although I can't help <laughs> thinking that if you were going to do that, you would just, you'd be better off <laughs> yeah. just starting from scratch. Anything else? Um, thought it might be interesting to mention the curse of Lisp. Maybe this is something where people groan who are old Lisp people. Um, but what is, what is the curse of Lisp? Something along the lines of Lisp being so powerful and flexible. And once you learn it, you can use it for all sorts of things and write a lot of functionality very easily, yet it hasn't really got much traction in the industry, general wide mm. adoption, that kind of thing. It hasn't had the mm. adoption that Python's got, for example. Yeah. But I mean, I'm, I'm so sure you could insert Ruby or JavaScript or C or any other language there too. Yeah. Well, probably yeah. not C actually, just scripting languages for the purpose of the yep. discussion. So do you, do you feel that there is some indefinable reason for it not being more popular than it is? Well, I think it's definable, but then that gets into a lot of speculation about why, mm. and then everyone has their own opinions on those on these kinds of things. And mm. of course I have mine, but yeah. It's, and what is that? So I think with a lot of these older languages, they have slightly incompatible implementations and you end up with fragmentation and different implementations of all sorts of features that you would just expect to work in a unified way in other languages. So I think Python and Ruby and Perl, all the, all the sort of more modern popular scripting languages, calling Perl modern, maybe that's a bit of a... <laughs> people will laugh at that. But, you know, modern compared to Lisp, I suppose. You can write to a to an implementation. And I think with a lot of these things, you end up doing that anyway. If you write Lisp, you don't just write generic Lisp, you generally write to an implementation. And I think Lisp suffered from not having a good, solid, agreed on implementation earlier on. So you think um, that that's potentially where the, the curse front comes from is is that fragmentation and um, dilution of, of the mind share uh, when it comes to all of these different dialects? Yeah, the different implementations and, yeah, common Lisp or not. And then even mm. that there have been branches of Lisp, like Scheme, or mm. things similar to Lisp that have come out later that have some improvements. So if you want to use a Lisp-like language, it's not like there's one great, well-maintained, yeah. well-updated Lisp to use. Yeah. There's all these Lisp-like things that you could use, and then it, I think mm. that dilutes as well there's yeah, yeah. lisp there's racket there's closure there's there's a few of those lisp inspired languages mm. and i mean some some of those those lisp inspired languages have had some some varying level of success from what i gather yeah that's true and i shouldn't make out like lisp has been a complete failure either but it's called the curse of lisp for a reason so yeah <laughs> <laughs> um it, it is interesting just to see how things can be really powerful but but not that popular. I mean, it could just be the complexity. Like, if you look at Haskell, that's also a complicated language yeah. that hasn't really taken well, is, off. Yeah, I mean, is the power of it the curse? Could simply be that. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you need to pass functions to things a lot and maybe people just find that a bit confusing. Mm. And every now and again, I want to do something that would be pretty easy in Python or fairly straightforward at least and in Lisp it ends up being a bit wonky and weird and you have to write some lambda function and you know maybe that's part of it too hmm 
you've thumbed your nose at the curse. It, it obviously has its utility for some subset of the population. Yeah, and there are companies using it. I heard Grammarly yeah. is written in Lisp. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. this is interesting. So after talking about the curse of Elisp, it all feels a bit grim, but I think in general, <laughs> Emacs has a pretty bright future and Elisp as well. Um, there's been mm. recently uh, code compilation support for Elisp and there's it's a pretty big deal, I think, and uh, for mm. faster code execution. And there's been a post very recently about a completely rewritten memory manager or garbage collector mm. For, mm. for Emacs, which should improve the speed noticeably. So there's a lot of interesting development going on and people are writing a, a lot of functionality into Emacs. So in general, I think mm. it's it's a fairly healthy ecosystem. Yeah, that's right. I mean, certainly in the Emacs space, even for someone like myself, um, who doesn't uh, have much skin in the game as far as Lisp languages go, um, you know, I can still tell that it's a very... Uh, it's a very strong and vibrant community and, and like you say, an ecosystem. And um, I think I think it's um, always going to have an important place um, in the uh, in the wider um, development um, landscape. All right, so should we leave it there? Yeah, I think that's a, a nice point to tie it off at. Thanks, uh, everyone, for joining us for the conversation today. If you'd like to listen to previous episodes, you can find them at our website, which is conversationsincode.xyz. For any feedback, suggestions, or other thoughts, you can email us at conversationsincode at gmail.com. We'll catch you next time. See you later.